Hello and welcome to the History of the Cards, episode 48, The One Who Conquers. So last time, we stopped with a large Byzantine army sitting in the fortress of Babylon, and to their east in Heliopolis was a 12,000 infantry Arab army that just came from Palestine, and to their west, across the Nile, was Am's column of 4,000 veteran horsemen. Now, if you ask me, the right course of action would have to move quickly and the slow-moving army, sitting in Heliopolis, defeated them and then trapped Am's forces across the Nile. Sure, man-to-man, an Arab soldier was probably better than a Byzantine soldier in Egypt. But this mostly played out in the cavalry. Men with shields and swords can only be so much better than other men with shields and swords. Not to mention, the army in Babylon outnumbered the one in Heliopolis by close to 2 to 1, and probably had better swords and shields. Even in the case of a defeat, a battle where the elite Arab horsemen were absent made an organized retreat back to Babylon much more realistic than one when those horsemen are chasing you all the way back. But of course, this is not what Cyrus did. He sat in his fortress and literally did nothing. And it's really hard here to figure out what was the overall strategy, as even the most obvious goal of preventing the two Arab armies from joining forces was not pursued aggressively. Amr managed to pull another miraculous crossing of the Nile, and was able to unite with the 12,000 strong army in Heliopolis. And it was at this point when an open battle was much more favorable to the Arabs with their combined forces than to the Byzantines that Cyrus finally decided to give them that battle. It seems that there was tensions between Cyrus and his general, Theodore. Cyrus did not want to fight and had a plan of eventually paying the Arab off with tribute once the Nile flooded and made their movement difficult. And his general, Theodore, was itching for a fight the whole time. Pursuing either of these strategies consistently may have worked, but it seems that Cyrus overruled Theodore when it was best to fight, and Theodore overruled Cyrus when it was best not to fight. So, when the Arab army was finally united with fresh supplies and men from Palestine and an excellent morale, Theodore led the Romans from Babylon for a six-mile march toward Heliopolis. Amr, for his part, repeated the same playbook from Yarmouk at a smaller scale. He figured that, at the first sign of trouble, the Byzantines would go back to their fortress, as that's what they always did when they fought him before. He also knew that, to conquer Egypt, a victory has to be decisive. He had no means of taking fortified Alexandria, or fight a guerrilla warfare in the Delta with any remnant of a surviving Byzantine army. So, he divided his forces into three units, one to fight the incoming Romans, and two to cover possible retreat routes from the battle toward Babylon. It was a bold, risky strategy, 
as it really meant that if the Byzantines did not retreat as expected, the Arab force fighting them head-on was seriously outnumbered, and Amr himself, who was leading that group, would be threatened. The Roman army for Durbart went toward Heliopolis, organized and ready to fight an actual battle. So, when the forces met, they did not retreat as expected, and the fighting was fierce, was Amr's detachment being seriously in trouble, and the Byzantine displaying unexpected courage. Fortunately for the Arab generals, so, one of the two groups among the retreat routes got concerned about seeing no one retreating, and they went back to Heliopolis and abandoned their position. It could have also been the plan all along, but I'm giving the Byzantine credit for scouting the area for any hidden force. At any rate, the appearance of what looked like a second Arab army from their flank unnerved the previously determined Romans, and they started to break and retreat to their fortress. And that's when the late trap snapped into action, and a third Arab detachment got into the action, turning the organized retreat into a chaotic one. It was not a total defeat, so. Remember, one retreat route was available, and the Byzantines still had total control over the Nile, with transport boats in it. So, Theodore and the core leadership of the Byzantine army ended up taking boats back to Babylon. Additionally, enough soldiers made it back to be able to garrison the fortress effectively, but basically nothing else. With this victory, Amr now controlled both sides of the river and the land routes throughout Egypt, and his men can go anywhere in Egypt but the Delta and Alexandria to feed his army indefinitely. Cyrus and his forces on the other hand controlled Babylon, the river itself with the transportation it provides, and Alexandria with its access to the outside world. In essence, also able to continue to get food, men, and supplies indefinitely. In addition, Nuko, controlling the western delta, was also sufficiently garrisoned by the Byzantines, who abandoned the city of the Fayyum to protect Nuko and approach to Alexandria from the west. This made the Arab army uneasy about scattering and actually starting to garrison cities and collect regular taxes. So, the fighting kept going. Amr moved the camp of the Arabs from Heliopolis to right next to Babylon and got ready for a long siege. The area was called by the Arabs Al-Fustat, literally meaning a camp, and it will eventually turn into the capital of Egypt until this very day, was the more impressive name Cairo, or Al-Qahira, literally the victorious one, or, according to my Twitter bull on it, the one who conquers. Now, to be totally accurate, it will move a bit through the centuries, and the more modern name and the most recent location was due to the Fatimids who would come in 300 years or so from now. But Am's camp under the fortress of Babylon is really what started the whole thing. 
upon the victory in Heliopolis, in the sitting of the camp, Amr, looking above to the impressive castle, quickly realized that the only way to truly besiege it is to control the Nile and prevent supplies from getting there by the river. I have posted a diagram of Babylon and its location on the website and social media. It still partially exists in modern Cairo as a church that was once within the fortress which managed to survive those 14 centuries. The church is known as Malaka, or the Hanging Church, as it hanged above one of the towers in the fortress. But to go back to the ancient castle, the fortress western wall was right up to the Nile with access to water and the river. Further, it was surrounded by a moat, so probably for half the year when the Nile waters were high, the fortress sat like an island in the middle of the river, surrounded by water from all sides. In the river itself, there was an island in the middle of the Nile, making the space where a boat can approach the fortress very narrow, essentially becoming a sitting duck from assault from the fortress towers. To truly threaten the fortress, you had to control the land axis, the river itself, and the island that was next to it. And for that, you needed lots of boats and men who knew how to sail them. So, Amr went and decided to deal with the local population, the Copts, to get those boats. And here, my dear listeners, is the first time in this whole narrative that actual Copts get involved in any meaningful way other than supplying forced requisitions to whatever armed group showed up and demanded it. The leading person Amr dealt with was named Abba Cyrus, was Abba meaning father, which may have implied a clergy. Also, it could also simply mean the father of Cyrus, or just a title of respect. A.G. Butler thinks that Abba Cyrus was a begarch of a gnome in Middle Egypt, and begarchs were usually not clergy. So I tend to think that he was just a landed aristocrat with the means to honor Amr's request. And still, it could have just been a nicely worded forced requisition. Also, Abba Cyrus kids are attested to in the papyri from this period, and seem to have done quite well after the conquest, so it was probably for a promise to play a leading role in the new administration. At any case, Abba Cyrus supplied the boats to Amr, but they ended up being not very useful, as the Arabs had no interest in sailing them, and the local sailors, Copts, were not going anywhere near Babylon with those boats, and risked their lives in a battle for Amr. Frustrated, Amr abandoned controlling the river and started to requisition forced labor to build bridges at key points of the Nile for movement of his troops. But very quickly, this too was abandoned. It was August 640 AD and the Nile had flooded, turning the Nile Valley into batches of small islands where movement is extremely limited. This, as expected, turned Babylon into an island and gave Cyrus the opportunity to do what he always wanted to do, convince the Arab 
to take some money and go back home. First, before dealing with Amrsa, he made sure to put all the Copts that were inside the fortress for protection in prison. Cyrus never warmed up or trusted Egyptians since his arrival, and he feared a betrayal from the inside. Which is important to note here. The war in Egypt was quite unique, as both the Arab army and at least the Byzantine leadership were not seen as Egyptians by the populace, and really, neither side made any serious effort to win over the natives. Were there Egyptians in the army of the Byzantines? Sure, probably a minority. Did some Egyptians join Amr after the Battle of Heliopolis? Absolutely. But in both cases, these were the exceptions, not the rule. This war was between two professional armies fighting over a prosperous territory with its inhabitants. It was understood by both sides that the inhabitants were the prize, not potential partners. So, for Cyrus, the Egyptians in the fortress belonged in jail, not with swords and shields to help defend it. As A.J. Butler put it, quote, At this time, there was no such thing as a Coptic party in the field. The Copts were wholly out of action, crushed by Cyrus, and it is untrue to represent them as capable of combining among themselves or of fighting or treating with the Arabs. At any rate, by October, Cyrus gathered his officers and made his case to buy peace from the Arabs. But again, it seems that not everybody was convinced as Cyrus ended up keeping the plan secret from the garrison, afraid of a mutiny from the common soldiers encouraged on by those in the fortress who wanted to fight, i.e. Theodore the general. So, secretly at night, he left the fortress for the island in the middle of the Nile and sent envoys to to open negotiations. According to the Islamic traditions, Cyrus made his case as such. Quote, you and your army have invaded our country and seem bent on fighting us. Your stay in the land is long, no doubt, but you are a small force, far outnumbered by the Romans, who are well equipped and well armed. Now you are surrounded by the waters of the Nile and are in fact captives in our hand. It would be well for you, therefore, to send envoys with any proposal you wish to make for an agreement before the Romans overwhelm you. Then it will be too late, and you will regret your error. Amr, an excellent negotiator, as he made his living as a merchant for a long time before he became a full-time warrior, took the offer and pretty much ran circles around Cyrus. The envoys were asked to stay in the Arab camp for two days, where Amr made sure to display the discipline and the character of his soldiers. Then he dismissed them with the following terms to Cyrus. Accept Islam and be treated as equal. Surrender unconditionally and pay a yearly tribute for protection. 
a special tax called the jizya? Or continue the war until God decides between us? The envoys returned with the terms and reported on what they saw to Cyrus. And he, anxious for a deal before the flood recedes and the Arab could move again, asked Amr to send a delegation so they can discuss his terms in more details. Amr agreed and sent a delegation, but he instructed them to give nothing but the terms he already offered. Cyrus offered to the delegation was, quote, two dinars ahead for every man in the Arab army, a hundred dinars for your commander, and a thousand for your caliph, on condition that you return to your own country. The delegation was stuck with the terms already given by Amrsa, and Cyrus's effort came to nothing. For a minute, it seemed that the patriarch was ready to accept the second option and work an arrangement where he can continue to govern Egypt on behalf of the Arabs. But the officers almost rebelled on hearing Cyrus's intentions, so he backed down pretty quickly. He then asked Amr's delegation for a month to think about it and try to convince the garrison, but they only gave him three days. Once Mukaukas was back to Babylon, it became clear that there was no way the garrison would accept a surrender. So, the patriarch, perhaps a bit cynically, decided to allow the garrison to fight, knowing that a defeat would bring them around to his plan. This, as you would expect, ended in another loss for the Romans. The fortress was an island, so to even get to the Arab camp, the garrison had to bring down a big, slow drawbridge, which gave the Arabs plenty of time to get into formation, eliminating any element of surprise. Further, the drawbridge limited how many Roman soldiers can face the Arabs at one time, again putting the garrison at a serious disadvantage. The defeated garrison then returned to the fortress, now a little bit more open to Cyrus's plan of surrender and paying tribute. Cyrus then went back to Amr and agreed to his condition to surrender the fortress and pay tribute, but with one important condition. The fortress will stay in Roman hand until Heraclius approves the treaty. Further, no military action should take place between the two armies until the emperor gives his response. For their part, the Arabs agreed with that condition, with the understanding that Cyrus would leave the fortress immediately and get an answer before the Nile recedes, as they couldn't do anything while the water was high anyway. Now, to be fair, Cyrus was not completely crazy here. The way that he saw it, Upper Egypt was already lost to the Arabs regardless. So paying them some money and keeping the Delta and Alexandria in Byzantine hand was better than losing the whole thing. Of course, the Arab would eventually come for the rest of Egypt anyway. But perhaps in the little time that he bought, more troops could be recruited, or events in Medina or Persia take the Arabs away 
So, in all sincerity, he left the fortress for Alexandria and dispatched a delegation to Heraclius explaining the situation and asking him to ratify the treaty. In Constantinople, Heraclius was absolutely livid when he heard about the treaty and Cyrus's plan. I mean, as far as he was concerned, he has kept 25,000 soldiers or so in the province and on the payroll to defend it. Soldiers and money that he needed badly to defend Anatolia and Armenia. And he knew from his cousin Nicetas' experience, remember him from the civil war against Phocas, that Egypt was a tough place to conquer and with many well-fortified points. And to top that off, all the money that Cyrus proposed to pay to the Arabs are just going to go and recruit more Arab soldiers, who will then be directed toward Anatolia and eventually Constantinople itself. So Heraclius sent for Cyrus to come personally to Constantinople and explain himself and how did the situation ever get that bad. Now the narrative has been kind of busy, but to close the loop on Heraclius' theological adventures, a year or so before Yarmouk, he has issued an edict banning all the theological discussions and the nature of Christ. Monoenergism was still the default position, but no one was allowed to talk about it. So Cyrus's persecution of the Miaphysite church had no imperial licks to stand on, and it was not really an excuse for his incompetence as far as the emperor was concerned. Still, once at Constantinople, Cyrus continued to advocate for the treaty, suggesting a new tax on Alexandria to pay for it, as well as to try and lure Amr to the Byzantine side by offering him an imperial bride. Heraclius responded angrily and accused him of, quote, a behavior worthy of an Egyptian peasant, i.e. of being a coward. He was imprisoned, tortured, and then exiled. That would not be the end of a Mokaukasa. Remarkably, he would go back to Egypt to govern again. But we will keep that for next week. For now, Heraclius rejected the treaty and sent a new governor to Egypt with orders to fight the Arabs to the last man. In the meantime, in Egypt, the Nile flood was receding, and the Arab army at Babylon did not hear anything back yet. So, the ceasefire was abandoned, and regular raids to feed the army was resumed. Additionally, was the country in chaos for over a year now, with really no one in charge. Armed gangs formed and made life even more difficult for the farmers and almost accidentally the Romans. Basically, these guys tried to control the Nile and use it to move quickly after smashing grab raids. So, they ended up harassing the Romans who controlled the river and made transportation through the Nile difficult. Not to mention, they constantly stole food and supplies 
that were meant to go to Babylon. As a response to these gangs and the Arab raids, local commanders and their own starting to recruit the natives and form what you might call a militia. Now, these guys initially were not interested in fighting anyone, rather just protect their land and livestock from random violence. The largest and most effective of these militias were in the heart of the Delta, where the Arab hand was virtually non-existent. Um, upon hearing of that force, decided not to wait until they become large enough to be threatening, and sent a significant portion of his army to put them down, in a way breaking his rule of not getting involved in guerrilla warfare in the Delta. The general leading the Byzantines, Theodore, when he heard of that development, also decided to send a small force to help the militias deal with Amr. Remarkably, the militias told the Roman force to beat it, and they were not interested in fighting under a Roman standard. Then, the Arabs showed up and were decisively defeated, even with the militias and the Roman force doing their own thing separately. The mauling was bad enough that Amr completely abandoned conquering the Delta for now, and instead of trying to crush the militias, he tried to make deals with them to recruit them on his side. The sources mention at least two militia leaders who nominally switched back and forth between the Arab and the Romans. But really, like I said before, these guys were just protecting their land and families from random violence and did not really feel strongly for either side. In the meantime, the garrison in Babylon were actually doing pretty good. The old tactic of attacking isolated Arabs and running back to the fortress was employed extensively, which frustrated Amr to no end. Additionally, the word has reached him that Heraclius has dismissed the coward Cyrus and promised an army to come and relieve them, raising their morale. They kept up the pressure day in and day out, and it seemed that they were never going to surrender to Amr, who have been besieging the fortress for close to seven months by now. Until, one day, in March 641 AD, a great shout went up in the Muslim camp, as if they had won a great victory. Intrigued, the garrison inquired what had happened, and the news that they received completely upended the world. The Emperor Heraclius had died, and no army was coming to relieve them. Worse, the succession in Constantinople was ugly. Heraclius's current wife and niece, Martina, a not very popular empress whose marriage to the Emperor was considered illegitimate, was scheming the hand power to her young son over his older sibling from a prior marriage of Heraclius, and really, rule behind the young emperor. The empire needed a great general who was able and willing to lead armies. 
Instead, it got a scheming empress with legitimacy problems and two young, inexperienced empress who probably did not like each other. The garrison in Babylon and the Arabs camped there knew that the end is nigh. With no reinforcement coming from Constantinople, it was just a matter of time. Yet still, the garrison in Babylon was not going to go down without a fight. A month later, on Good Friday, two days before the Easter of 641 AD, a serious storming attempt at night by the Arab army partially succeeded. They managed to get beyond the moat and scale the walls, but they ended up stuck there with the stairs to the rest of the fortress and further points on the walls blockaded with a recently built additional wall. The garrison has identified this point as a vulnerability and basically isolated it from the rest of the fortress. The Arabs could have scaled the walls back down to the rest of the fortress, but that would have meant large losses and the garrison have made it clear that they will fight to the last man. The commander of the fortress then opened negotiation with Amr. Both men valued the life of their men. And really, it was clear that the Arabs would continue their assault and eventually control the fortress. So, a deal was reached quickly. Amr gave the garrison three days to evacuate the fortress by river, taking with them enough supplies to last for a few days. All lives inside the fortress would be spared, and no money would have to be paid to Amr, other than what was already in the castle. Now, remember about those poor souls in the fortress who were imprisoned by Cyrus earlier for the crime of being Copts? Well, on the holiest day of the year, Easter, they were dragged out of their cells, scourged by the garrison, and then had their hands cut off before being released. John of Nicol provides the perfect ending for the epic siege of Babylon with his scorn on what the garrison did. He writes about the Byzantine garrison, quote, Those enemies of Christ who have defiled the church by an unclean face and who have wrought apostasies and deeds of violence such as neither pagan nor barbarian has wrought. They have despised Christ and his servants, and we have not found such evil doers, even among the worshippers of false idols. Ouch. The next day, where the agreement was Amr, the garrison evacuated the impregnable Babylon for Alexandria, where the Romans would make the last stand in defense of Egypt. Or would they? Thank you for listening. Farewell and until next week.